This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Stay tuned for the 7th Avenue Project. And this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, ask a linguist. I did, and the linguist in question, Jeffrey Pullum, set me straight on a lot of hooey surrounding the English language, including some claptrap that's being passed off as gospel by self-styled priests of grammar. You don't want to follow false prophets, do you? So listen in. Okay, so we're going to hear a conversation I had several years ago with the linguist and English grammar authority, and I mean real authority, Jeff Pullum. He's the co-editor of the monumental Cambridge Grammar of the English Language, and he was a professor of linguistics at UC Santa Cruz at the time we talked. He's since moved on to a plum position at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And you can tell the interview is a few years old because you'll hear me utter the now quaint term weblog, meaning blog. Anyway... Though the interview is not new, the subject does spring eternal. Among the topics we covered, the never-ending grammar wars between those who tell us how English ought to be spoken and those like Jeff Pullum who describe how it really is practiced. And we discuss some bogus grammar rules that refuse to die, the remarkable stability of languages, and the language skills of animals and computers. Well, Jeff Pullum, welcome. Nice to be here, Robert. How many languages do you speak? Oh, everyone asks linguists that. I'm not here to speak languages. I'm here to study them and see how they work. Now, the reason I asked you that question that that plagues you as a linguist, how many languages do you speak, is that it seems uh, from reading your writing that a lot of misconceptions surround the field of linguistics and that it's uh, sometimes hard to get across what it is linguists do. Yes, it's just a nugget of sensible activities buried in a great swirling cloud of misconceptions. Um, Yeah, um, it is a very little-known subject. What is your biggest frustration, uh, being a linguist whose field is poorly understood by the public? Oh, it's not really a frustration. I try to make it an amusement. I sense there's a little frustration, though, on, on, on one score, and that is that language attracts a lot of people who are dispensing rules to the public, who haven't really undertaken any kind of empirical study of the language. Meanwhile, there is this pool of professionals who have linguists who aren't consulted on such questions very often. Well, it is a bit worrying that Americans seem to care about grammar a lot, and yet just about everything they believe about the grammar of their own native language is not true. Um, Also, It strikes me as very strange that so many Americans who are fluent and wonderful and interesting speakers of their language imagine somehow that they're not, 
They imagine that their grammar is halting and inexpert. They worry about it. They learn that I study grammar for a living, and they say, "Oh well, I'd better not say much around you then." They seize up, right?、Um, or they they attempt to disguise their Brooklyn accent as if, for some reason, a Brooklyn accent was terrible as compared to an Oxford accent. Linguists tend to take these things much more neutrally, and don't regard. Some dialects of English as inherently inferior to others, but above all, they ask for evidence that things are true of English, rather than just believing things because they've heard them said before. So, faced with a claim like that, you mustn't split infinitives, which really means you mustn't put an adverb in between "to" and the verb. Linguists ask, "Well, what does the record show about earlier English literature? When good writers write, do they do that or not?" Now it turns out they essentially all do. So what does that mean? For some people, well, they've heard that you shouldn't, so that's the way it is, and you just shouldn't. It's very strange that there is this superstitious attitude to English grammar. Um, and an actual resistance to the idea that you could bring evidence to bear on questions about what does occur in English and what does not, what is correct and what is not, and yet there's a community, or one could say a minor industry, of people who pronounce on the correctness and incorrectness of various grammatical practices, who say that you should never split an infinitive or never end a sentence with a preposition,、uh, that you should use the word whom, which we'll get back to later. When the、uh, the who being spoken of is the object of an action rather than the 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 one doing the action,、um, first of all, why do you think we even have a culture of so-called language mavens who who tell us what we should and shouldn't say? Yes, it's an interesting question because I suspect that there are some cultures in which this profession is unknown. So、um, you have to assume that this has to do with、um, divisions. In the English-speaking community of class and、uh, things like rural versus urban residents, that there have been times when people, perhaps moving from the country into a city, wanted to fit in better and not sound like they were a hick.、Um, that sort of thing is known to have contributed to the tradition in England of publishing books helping people to speak. The variety of English that was becoming standard. There was a period in the seventeenth、uh, and eighteenth centuries when movement into the cities and movement toward London from other regions was leading to a great demand for people to be told how they should use the language to fit in more and sound more sophisticated. And the same things happened on a much larger canvas in the United States. But it is still very strange that、um, you should have myths like the idea that prepositions are not allowed to end clauses still being quite alive in the USA. When in Britain, long ago, that was just forgotten. Everybody who's at all educated in Britain knows that it's okay to say who were you speaking to. And people who are not educated at all have never even raised the question. But educated people know that you can have prepositions at ends of clauses, and the idea that you couldn't 
was a piece of nonsense invented in the 17th century by a single guy, the essayist John Dryden. In the United States, I've met very highly educated PhD scientists who believe with a passion that it is a terrible thing to have a preposition at the end of a sentence, and they go into amazing contortions to try and avoid it. Um, like that thing I found with the New Yorker search engine when I searched for something and got no results one day. The New Yorker search engine told me, I'm sorry, I could not find that for which you were looking. <laughs> I thought, that for which you were looking? <laughs> Good heavens. It's the New Yorker search engine. Okay. So I wrote on language log about how ridiculous this was. And I think somebody at the New Yorker must have been reading it because they've changed that message oh, now. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, we should, we should clarify that, you know, what we mean by saying ending a, a sentence with a preposition is ending with one of those, those words like at or to, so that um, maybe in Taxi Driver, the movie, uh, instead of saying, who are you looking at? Robert De Niro should have said, at whom are you looking? <laughs> yes, and he would have sounded like a Martian. Take me to your leader. Um, no, the truth is there are two kinds of languages. There's the kind like um, standard French and uh, most varieties of Spanish, I think, that do not allow prepositions to be separated from their noun phrases that normally follow them. And there's languages like Icelandic and English that do and always have. English has had prepositions separated from their noun phrases left at the ends of clauses in things like, who are you looking at, for... 700 years or more. You mentioned the language log just a moment ago. You co-founded a weblog with Mark Liberman, another linguist. Tell us what it's all about. It's a group blog, and it's devoted to the science of linguistics, really, except that we take it very lightheartedly, and we look for things that um, tie in with popular culture, things currently happening in the media. There's a little bit of commentary on recent utterances by political figures. Um, if you look at Language Log today, I think one of the top posts is about an amazing, there's a picture too, there's an amazing sign um, in Wales, in the British Isles, uh, where according to law, the signs on the road all have to be in both English and Welsh. And this means that people who don't know Welsh very well have to translate into Welsh to make the signs. And they have this sign that's meant to say, cyclists must dismount. And the mistranslation that has occurred is a pretty terrible one. It may have had to do, in fact, with a, a spelling corrector correcting cyclist to cystitis. It's not quite clear. <laughs> but what is clear is this. The Welsh reads, bladder inflammation has returned. <laughs> it does not say cyclists must dismount. <laughs> it's one of the worst mistranslations we've ever seen. So we just... <laughs> show you a picture of the sign and discuss a little how this could have come about. Things of that sort make it very funny. Language log is, a lot of the time, very funny, very entertaining. But always underneath, since all of it is written by professional linguists, there is this interest in finding out what's really going on, how languages really work. Now, listeners who want to see the language log for themselves should go to what address on the web? www.languagelog.com now, you know, Jeff, you don't have to say www anymore at all. Let's just say languagelog.com. Yeah, let's. Uh, or if you prefer the traditional medium of a book, a lot of the language log posts from both my guest Jeff Pullum and his uh, colleague 
Mark Liberman are collected in a new book called Far from the Madding Gerund and other dispatches from the language log. Um, I want to talk about some of the other false notions that uh, that you've attacked in the language log and elsewhere. Uh, we talked about the old uh, bugaboo about splitting infinitives, that is, putting words between to and the verb that follows it, like the most famous example in pop culture, to boldly go from Star Trek, is breaking a supposed rule about splitting infinitives, ending sentences and prepositions, another fake rule. Um, what are some others that you guys have lain into? Well, there's a story about how you're not supposed to use which in a relative clause except for the kind that has commas. So uh, the things which he did is supposed to be ungrammatical. It's supposed to be the things that he did. So you look in the King James Bible and uh, you see the line, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. And so what's that meant to mean? And the King's James, King James Bible is in bad English. Okay, look at anything else. Look at any novel and start reading it through, looking for the word which, until you come to a relative clause beginning with which, um, I have found that you generally only need to read about 1% to 3% of the book, and uh, you'll quite often find them on the first page. The people who advise that you must never do this, you have to say the things that he did, not the things which he did, um, do not even respect that rule in their own writing. E.B. White is an example. Um, he insists in his contribution to the Strunk and White Elements of Style book that which is wrong. And as soon as I realized that he was stressing this, I went to his own works. Um, I looked in Stuart Little and found an example of his on the first page. Um, White is a fine writer. There's nothing wrong with his writing. What's wrong is his advice about how to write, which is either platitudes like be clear or completely incorrect claims like, uh, and I'll give you a different one, never use they with an antecedent that is singular like every or each. Each student should look at their own book is claimed in Strunk and White to be ungrammatical. Look at the history of English. You find all of the finest novelists do this. You find it in Shakespeare. You find it in Jane Austen. Which is great news for people who want to avoid uh, gender in the use of such pronouns. They don't have to say his, her, her, his. They can just say theirs. Yes, in most contexts. But it's a very interesting point that there are tight rules about how you do this, not rules set by other people who are recommending, but rules that we all obey because of the feel we have for the language. One of them would be this, and I, I've never seen a real counterexample to this that you couldn't argue about. With proper names, you don't use they ever, not even if you're unaware of the gender of the person you're referring to. Let's suppose you've been talking about somebody called Chris who's been hanging around the studio and I find a pen with Chris engraved on it, I can't say it looks like Chris left their pen behind because it doesn't go with proper names. Whoever this Chris is, even if you've never mentioned the gender, this is either a male or a female, and it's the name of a person, with that you don't use they. But with words like anyone or no one, it's perfect. Now you look in Strunk and White's book and they say, don't do this. Well, I think you have the right to ask, why the hell not? Yeah, Strunk and White has come up a couple times already in this conversation. This is a book 
the elements of style that uh, has been regarded almost as something of a Bible by some people as to how to write well, how to speak well. Um, E.B. White, very famous writer. He wrote Stuart Little. He wrote uh, regularly for The New Yorker for many years. But you call it a perennially clueless, stupid little book and a toxic little book of crap. Yes. <laughs> uh, when I'm in a temper, I do tend to speak like that. Uh, let's say it's a bit small to be a Bible, and uh, not every word in it is true. Uh, I think you could say that much. It's very bad on points of grammar. And I believe that on points of style... It is close to useless because the advice is empty stuff like omit needless words. Well, if elements of style and I take it many other traditional usage guides and writing guides are out, what uh, what books would you recommend for people who really want to get uh, an authoritative word on uh, on usage and things like that? There's a wonderful book called Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of English Usage, which is really reliable, gives you the evidence. It doesn't shy away from saying, so this is basically what's correct, or so people don't usually do that. But it provides you with quotations and evidence on the basis of which you can make up your mind. And it simply will not fall into the temptation of laying down the law when the evidence says that the law is a mistake. It doesn't repeat rules that can be shown to be spurious on the basis of the evidence. And if the situation's a little complex, it'll draw the right distinctions and show you the complexity. So I think that's a, a book that should be on every writer's desk. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and we're listening to an interview with Jeff Pullum, linguist and co-editor of the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language. And by the way, I misquoted Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver when I said that he said, who are you looking at? Actually, what he said was... You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. So he didn't end a sentence with a preposition, even though it would have been perfectly okay if he had. Now back to my conversation with Jeff Pullum. People are always exclaiming about the deterioration, the decay, the, the ruin of our beloved language at the hands of poor speakers and poor writers. Um, is there any cause at all to be worried about the fate of the English language, uh, save for the efforts of, you know, vigilant protectors like the, the language mavens? No, for this reason, um, the syntax of standard English is so secure and so invariant that I see essentially no variation in it right around the world. And people don't really voluntarily control it enough to mess it up. When they speak, they broadly speak with the rules of standard English intact, if they are standard English speakers. And um, there are some people who are non-standard English speakers. I'll explain what I mean. I'm, there are constructions like uh, he didn't do nothing about it, where the negation is expressed more than once, not just didn't, but also nothing. Um, that's not a standard English construction. doesn't mean you're a bad person if you use it. Uh, most Americans uh, are acquainted with it, and many use it. But it's not a standard English construction. 
the thing is, it's so clearly marked as such that the distinction maintains itself. People don't generally drift by mistake into using non-standard construction. But the reason for that isn't the people who are scolding you for saying it ain't? Or I don't think any scolding is needed to preserve this situation. The people who don't use ain't really don't like the word and don't feel it's in their language, and it just stays out. We don't need a whole lot of scolding to keep English roughly the way it is. And in areas where it's actually changing, in things like people beginning to use as far as, as if it were a compound preposition of some sort. In other words, saying as far as what we've got to do this afternoon, meaning as far as what we've got to do this afternoon is concerned. When something like that starts, the scolding is powerless to stop it. So we have a complete argument that mostly the scolding is not necessary and where the language is changing a little bit, once the change gets underway, the scolding is not sufficient to stop it. So I'd say there's no role for the scolding at all. And point number three, the change itself is not injurious to the language. It better not be because every human language is slowly changing all the time from generation to generation. It doesn't change very much within a few years. Nobody should imagine that... Uh, the rise of the use of cell phones will suddenly revolutionize the language and uh, you won't be able to understand anybody anymore. It's not going to, you know, you won't find you just go away for a vacation and come back and you can't understand what people are saying anymore. It's not how it works. You will find that when you look at how your grandchildren use the language, it's not exactly the way you did. You'll still understand them, but they'll have a few little bits that have changed. That no one can stop. And it does no harm. Do you think the intensity uh, with which the self-appointed language experts, the, the grammar cops, address these issues and the alarm that they sound when they, when they talk about these things, is some kind of displaced anxiety about the rate of change in society? Well, if so, it's oddly deflected from where it should be targeted because the change in language is so slow and so little and matters hardly at all. The changes in things like pension plans are massive and can wipe you out. Ah, but yes. it's so easy to weigh in on the issue of language. It's so easy to say, thou shalt and thou shalt not, whereas it's very hard to uh, come up with a way of saving Social Security. It seems to be easy to convince people that you can weigh in on it. Uh, I sometimes think that as soon as somebody starts pontificating about language just by the very fact that they assert oh you shouldn't say that that's wrong they define themselves as an educated person who knows about these things and everyone else just kowtows to them straight away people just it's a walkover you you don't really have to do the fight you win just by announcing yourself as a person who cares about this stuff. So is this stuff really a, a kind of um, cloaked way of uh, announcing oneself as superior and defining one's class relative to the, the unwashed masses? To some extent, uh, there's some of that in it. I've also noticed that um, to an interesting degree, the people who are most concerned to be purists about the English language turn out to have had um, an origin 
where they didn't have English as their first language. More than once I've encountered people whose first language was Irish or Scots Gaelic and who'd grown up to be standard English speakers with very strict ideas about correctness. And of course, if you imagine what it might be like to be laughed at in school because you were one of the kids still speaking Irish when most of your classmates spoke English, the, the humiliation might be such as to remind you forever that this is terribly important. Yeah, I'm thinking of some other cases. I mean, uh, you, you cite the case of William Raspberry, the uh, African-American columnist who is staunchly opposed to uh, what we call black vernacular English. Yes, the so-called Ebonics, um, which was never really called that by linguists. Linguists tend to call it African-American vernacular English, so that's not a very uh, uh, snappy little name for it. But uh, yes, William Raspberry wrote a stupid column in the Washington Post mocking um, black English when it was announced by the school board in Oakland that they wanted to take seriously the fact that the kids who were coming to first grade in their school system did not have standard English the way we're speaking it as a native language and that that should be taken just as seriously as if they spoke Spanish rather than English. Um, and what was fascinating to me about his uh, piece, he had 32 words of dialogue in this column of imaginary dialogue between an imaginary him and an imaginary cab driver in Washington, D.C. And in those 32 words of dialogue, I found five clear errors in the grammar of African-American vernacular English, which now, does have its own rule. Yes, uh, a number of linguists have studied uh, African-American vernacular English, and, and uh, you've written about this, and found that it has its own rules, its own consistency, its own logic, and some of the, uh, the fun that's made of it as sort of randomly throwing in the verb be, as in I be running, is really unfair. Yeah, well, I don't know about unfair, but it's just incorrect. Uh, the fact is, uh, he be running... Uh, is grammatical in African-American vernacular English, but it doesn't mean he is running. It means he runs all the time. It's a habitual. So you don't describe someone who's singing now by saying he be singing. You describe somebody who, who habitually sings around the office uh, in that way. That's something that people who don't know this language could easily be mistaken on. And... William Raspberry made that mistake in his column at least twice. And he made several other mistakes where it's quite clear he didn't know the grammar of the language that he was mocking. And I wrote to him to ask him just why, uh, when the African-American poor people in the inner cities who use this language have so much else to worry about, why are you adding to their misery by mocking them when you don't even know how to use the language they use? And, well, it's been about, how long, seven, eight years now of silence. I don't think I'm going to get an answer to that letter. Now, there's another line of argument uh, against uh, sort of validating African-American vernacular English, which is that though it may be a consistent and perfectly uh, respectable uh, language system on its own terms, it's not the language in which you can succeed in American society. So you have to disabuse people of its use in order to get them ahead. I know a number of black commentators took that line. Yeah, I and I'm not disagreeing with them. It's important to see that I'm not some kind of radical who wants to change society. It's a 
plain and simple fact that it would be best when being interviewed by a white person for a job to use standard English. It's something that you should know how to do. Many African-Americans say they're bilingual. Uh, yes, or bidialectal. So use the right one. I'm not suggesting that society could be or should be altered so that the news would be read in African-American vernacular. I just don't think that would work. I don't see any reason to do it. Uh, the difficulties of implementing it would be extreme. No, the world is as it is, and uh, you just are cruising for a bruising if you try to push for radical changes in society like the one that would be necessary to ensure that African-American vernacular English had higher status than standard English as used on NPR. It won't happen. Don't push for it unless you want to waste a lot of your time. But I am saying this. Anyone who thinks that African-American vernacular is simply an attempt by stupid people to speak standard English, only they can't hack it, so they make a lot of mistakes. They simply haven't looked at the evidence. That's not what's going on. Now, when you take on um, uh, the other side in the grammar wars in your writing, uh, in the language log and elsewhere, you often are really exercised and incensed. You talk about the urge to hurl furniture. Um, you sometimes have called these guys morons. Is that a pose, or are you really, really angered by this? It's just my little style. It's for fun. No, I'm not actually enraged by this stuff. I have never hurled a copy of the Cambridge Grammar at the cat. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't drive me crazy. I'm a very relaxed and comfortable and happy guy, but it, I like to write whimsical and funny stuff, and on occasion... I will describe imaginary rages that I have flown into. It's really just for fun. Well, you heard it here, folks. Jeff Pullum isn't as scary as you thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> um, among the most influential, I think, uh, users of English these days uh, for a certain generation are, are rappers. Have you followed rap music at all? I actually haven't. I do remember at the very beginnings when rap was brand new and with TV documentaries showing young black men setting up microphones in public places and chanting what appeared to be a strange kind of poetry. I thought this is really new. This even for African-Americans who are so verbally uh, fluent and brilliant a lot of the time anyway, this is remarkable on-the-fly poetry at high speed. I've never seen anything like it. It then developed into a musical genre which, frankly, I don't have a lot of respect for. I have not particularly enjoyed it. Um, it just lost me. I don't have any objection. Um, at first, it seemed very surprising that anyone could do it at all. Uh, but the question of whether it turns into really fine poetry, I beg leave to doubt it. But I say that purely as someone who has not paid enough attention. And most things get better and more interesting when you do pay them close attention. I'm Robert Polly, and we're listening to my 2006 interview with linguist Jeff Pullum. And we'll get back to that right after a break. Meanwhile, some music. Before he became a linguist, Jeff Pullum was for a time in the 1960s a rhythm and blues musician. 
He played keyboards with the popular British R&B group Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band. Here's their cover of Aaron Neville's Tell It Like It Is, featuring Jeff on piano. If you want something to play with, go and find yourself a toy. Oh, yeah. Baby, my time is too expensive. Just a little boy, oh no If you are serious, and I believe you are Don't play with my heart, it makes me furious But if you want me I'm back with linguist Jeff Pullum. Jeff, are there languages that are inherently better suited for certain purposes than other languages uh, as a result, let's say, of the group of people who tend to use them in the activities that they specialize in? Well, I tend to think that it's only in rather superficial ways that that is true. Um, Perhaps that's because I actually remember there was a time in the 1950s when... A few people in the States thought that China wasn't going to get anywhere trying to produce a nuclear bomb because the Chinese language wasn't suited to modern science. They wouldn't be able to talk about the necessary concepts. They had no uh, idiom for this, and it wasn't going to fly, you know. And when that first Chinese nuclear test went off, those people were refuted. <laughs> very rapidly at very high temperature. Um, What was necessary in modifying the Chinese language so that there could be nuclear physics labs? Very little. Yes, you've got to have names for uranium and plutonium. But 
You can just adapt a language by borrowing loan words if you want to, or inventing nicknames for things. Basically, the structure of a language is all there and ready to do anything you might want to do.、Um, this this brings uh, up uh, a famous canard in language that you've spent a lot of time、uh, talking about and and trying to dispel: the idea that、uh, Eskimos have some really huge number of words for snow. Oh yes, this is the great. Urban legend of language: the number of people who I've heard tell me the Eskimos have n words for snow, and they pick a value of n, and everybody picks a different n. That's the thing; it's different numbers every time.、Uh, numbers ranging from the region of、uh, a dozen up to in the thousands, and none of the people who say this, the Eskimos, have a hundred and fifty words for snow. None of them have any knowledge of any of the eight Eskimo languages. It's a language family. It's not one language. So, so tell us the truth. How many words do Eskimos have for snow? Well, one of the answers that my friend Jerry Sadock, who's actually studied Eskimo in detail, likes, is that the answer is one. The word is aput, and he's actually had that. Made as the、uh, personalized license plate for his pickup truck. It says "aput" on the back. That's the word for snow. It means snow lying on the ground. Now, there are some other roots that are definitely to do with snow. There's a root "kanik" that means a snowflake, but that's a count noun. You know, one snowflake, two snowflakes. There is a word for blizzard, naturally, and a word for snowdrift, and this is roughly like English. Now we make distinctions. Though we might say corn snow, hard pack,、uh, swash, and soaking day.、Uh, though in Eskimo languages,、uh, it's suffixes you add on to the word, rather than extra words you put with them, and that might have led to some of the confusion. Now, I want to get back to the question of of maintaining the language, minding the language, whether we really need anybody to、uh, to advise us on its usage. Uh, you write that human language is systematic and stable to a degree that is quite astonishing. I want to ask why that is.、Uh, when nations crumble,、uh, societies fall apart, civilizations collapse. Why is it that the language keeps trucking along? It's a very interesting question, and I realize as I hear you ask it that I have simply no idea why it would be that stable. But there's something about the intensity. And、um, uh, the sheer amount of interaction that we do with our language every day—human groups are typically sitting around talking to each other all the time, paying extremely close attention to fine little distinctions, adjusting the way they talk to the way other people talk. There's so much of it going on; it just holds itself together like any complex activity. Um, but I have very little to say about why it should be so stable. Apart from that, that's interesting. So you wouldn't cite another reason, which、uh, would maybe、um, refer back to、um, the work of Noam Chomsky and others who who, who asserted that、uh, a lot of the real deep structures, the universal structures of language, are pretty much innate, built into our brains. And it's、uh, it's only minor variations that are sort of layered on during our development. We learn vocabularies, we learn particular rules of of individual languages, but the real foundation is there, and it's sort of written into our our、uh, brains' wiring. That's not the reason. Well, there may be some aspects of language 
that are really specifically linguistic and specifically built into us by our biology. But tracking them down is much more difficult than some linguists will admit, I think. And the variety in the languages of the world is quite enough to give you some doubts about whether anything very tight has been arranged for us by biology. For example, if you take simple sentences like the dog chased the cat with a subject and a verb and an object, there are only six logically possible orders in which those can occur. And of those six, the number that is used by some languages as their typical ordinary standard order in the way that subject-verb-object is clearly the most usual one for English is six out of the six. All of them occur as the standard, normal, typical order in some language or other. Um, it's, it could easily have been arranged by biology that it would always be subject-verb-object for all of us. Mm -hmm. It just simply isn't the case. Right. So if biology allows that kind of variation and flexibility, then it must be something beyond biology that maintains the particular variant uh, order syntax that you just described within these particular languages. Well, I think given how different languages are from each other, that it's got to be something other than universal grammar that accounts for the stability. It's got to be something like the intensity of our interaction, the degree of attention we pay to each other's talk. Because um, there are five or 6,000 languages spoken in the world, and they really are radically and dramatically different from each other in some respects. Now, we spent a lot of time talking today about the, um, again, people you call language pontificators, some people call grammar cops, others call language mavens, who are these unofficial but rather powerful people who pronounce on what's right and what's wrong in, uh, in, in English. Um, they're called prescriptivists. They attempt to prescribe rules to us. You practice something uh, in your work, for instance, the, the big reference volume that you uh, co-edited with Rodney Huddleston called the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language, uh, a massive volume, almost 2,000 pages. You practice something called descriptivism. What is descriptivism? Um, it's simply the principle that when talking about a language... You should try to figure out the way it is and lay that out rather than figure out ways you would like it to be and put down recommendations. That the only grammar that's going to be truly useful to you is going to be one based on how the language is used. I'm going to Croatia next month for a conference and it'll be my first visit to Croatia ever. And I got one book on the Croatian language. I want it to be a description of the way Croatian actually is being used in the restaurants and hotels in Croatia today. Not what some I, Croatian high school teacher says you should be saying. Right, right. Now, the question for a scientist such as yourself compiling a, a big book on, on uh, questions of grammar in English using the descriptive approach, that is, looking at real speakers, is, well, real speakers you know, have all kinds of individual idiosyncrasies and ways of misspeaking. In fact, I've probably done it in this interview myself uh, in ways that I'll notice and regret when I listen to the tape. But where do you draw the line between, you know, those outliers and what you think of as the way the language is spoken, as though there's some real model to be found there? Nobody is saying that there are no errors in people's speech. Of course there are. People 
fail to complete the sentence they were trying to complete. They flub, they, they dry up, they can't think of the right word, they repeat words accidentally. All sorts of errors can happen. What you have to try and do is identify which are the sporadic errors in utterances you've observed and which are the general principles that govern the way people use the language when, to their own satisfaction, they feel they got it right. Now, that means that written evidence is quite useful because writers have a chance to edit and make sure that there aren't too many mistakes. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and my guest is Jeff Pullum, professor of linguistics at the University of Edinburgh. We're talking about English grammar, in fact, and fancy. So, so by studying uh, enough instances of the language, you can discover that what you consider to be the real essential operating principles, independent of all the individual variations that we each uh, each uh, work on the language when we speak. Yes, of. and that core of agreement has got to be there. Otherwise, the practice of conversation would be just inexplicable. You do, in fact, understand quite a lot of what other people say to you. And you've got to do that on the basis of shared principles about how sentences are organized. So the question comes up then, if descriptivism tells us how the language really is practiced, and if that's a good approach for someone, say, wanting to learn Croatian before they visit Croatia, is there any value in prescriptive rules at all? Do we need any handbooks to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do? Well, I sometimes think there is a rather self-serving way in which it can help. And I think this is the only excuse for teaching any of this stuff at all. Um, let's just accept for the sake of argument that split infinitives are a respectable construction in English. They've been in the language 700 years. Fine novelists use them, and there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't. It's all fine. But if you have a boss for whom you have to draft letters and the boss hates them, you'd better be able to recognize them so that you could, if need be, control for it and keep them out. That is, just because there are people in authority who have these bees in their bonnet about grammatical points, it is useful to know enough grammar to be able to recognize what would violate one of these rules, even if it's not a real rule. You should be able to work out what would count as a violation of it if it were a rule. So though you write in your latest book, uh, Far From the Madding Gerund, about the imminent death of the, the, the word whom, Nonetheless, people like me should probably be able to trot out a good whom every once in a while when we're in the company of someone who uh, who finds that to be important. Well, I actually think that you've probably got it right just as you are. Quite often you will use phrases like uh, uh, anyone to whom this sort of thing is gibberish. Because the preposition right before the whom is a very common thing. You do hear lots of people saying to whom like that. What you don't hear is sentences beginning with whom. Uh, I mean, just listen for a few days to everything you hear said. See if you hear someone in ordinary conversation asking um, whom did they arrest? No, you sound like a twit if you do that. Yeah. So the word is dying little bit by little bit, 
and its frequency in ordinary conversation at the beginning of the sentence is now zero. Do you, do you see any kind of partisan, ideological, political alignment with the descriptivist, non-judgmental position on the one hand and the prescriptivist um, language cop attitude on the other hand? Does that tend to be right-wing, left-wing division? Not really. It's not a tight connection in any sense. The Only the very loosest connections exist. It's true that William Sapphire appears to be politically conservative and a bit prescriptive and judgmental on some aspect of language, though not as much as you might think. But then there are thoroughly liberal and left-wing leaning people who pick on George Bush's mistakes in language uh, as intensely as any old crusty right-wing prescriptivist ever did. I think anybody can, if they really put their mind to it, find fault with the language of others and mock them for it. And it's nearly always a rather demeaning thing to do. But it isn't the province of right-wingers only or left-wingers only. Um, both are guilty of overstatement and, above all, often guilty of pointing to things as wrong when, in fact, there's good evidence that they're nothing of the sort, that the distinction has been missed. Jeff, um, you write about quite a few other subjects in Far From the Matting Gerund and in some of your other essays that have been collected elsewhere. Um, one is the supposed ability of some very sophisticated animals to use language in a way that's similar to human beings. Coco the gorilla, um, Kanzi the bonobo. You dismiss these. You say that I don't believe that there's ever been an example anywhere of a non-human expressing an opinion or asking a question. My question for you is, why are those two acts particularly important, expressing an opinion or asking a question? They, these are the most fundamental things that show you what's going on is language use rather than um, using behaviors of any kind to try and influence somebody else's behavior to get them to do something. So I'm not impressed when someone teaches an ape, and it usually takes a lot of instruction, what the hand sign for banana is supposed to be and what the hand sign for refrigerator is supposed to be. And the ape, uh, when hungry, does a whole lot of repetitions of the banana sign and a few of the refrigerator sign and a few of the door open sign. Um, that's just explainable as a desperate effort to get the person to give them some food, another banana. Now, what, what about I'm looking for is an animal that can tell me something that it thinks is true, that doesn't relate to an immediate need for food. And I've never heard any serious evidence of that occurring with any species. So I, I'd say this, it's not that I uh, dismiss lots of animal language that I've been shown. I haven't been shown any, not not anything, not even once. Okay, now, how about this, though? And you're used to getting this from animal lovers, I'm sure. You say that you have, don't know of an instance where an animal can be shown to ask a question. Um, a lot of us dog owners have uh, experienced the moment when we issue an ambiguous command to our dog and he, she looks up at us with this questioning look, this tilt of the head that just seems to be saying, come again, what is it you just said? Seems to be saying is what you, the way you just put it. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. You look at the dog cocking its head, watching for clues. 
um, because dogs are very intelligent. I'm not denying that. And they are quite sensitive to uh, this consideration of the fact that you've got intelligence as well. So if you look in a certain direction, they should probably look there because there might be something relevant. All of that kind of reasoning about where to look, what's going on, whether you're feeling happy or whether you're displeased, what we're going to do next. Dogs are reasoning about that all the time. What they're not doing, uh, and I suppose they haven't really got much of a chance, um, is expressing opinions or actually composing contentful questions. Now, in the case of dogs, um, nobody's ever suggested that you get that in a productive capacity. People have suggested that you've got dogs who can be told things in English and they understand what they've been told. Um, I'm thoroughly inclined to doubt this. So that's animals. Now, what about computers? You've written in the past on what's called computational linguistics, particularly the effort to get computers that can understand real human language as it's, as it's uh, used by, by people. You wrote an essay, I think, a little more than 10 years ago in which you, were, you had attended a conference, and, and you were impressed by the progress that had been made at that point. Uh, where have we come today? It seems that the question of how to devise systems that have a full understanding of the grammar of English and respond to questions in English by working out from the grammar what the meaning would be has been shelved for about a decade by the computer industry. Personally, I hope it will come back. I hope we won't continue to use machines of the power and speed that we have available to us right now in ways that imply we have to learn their ways. They don't learn ours. These machines, as far as I can see, are big enough, powerful enough that they could incorporate the grammar of English in full and respond to questions and directions given in plain English. It just isn't being done and it isn't even being worked on. Uh, quite a long time ago, maybe 15 years back, the computer companies that were supporting research of this kind just changed direction. They went into areas like handwriting recognition, speech recognition, but computational linguistics as it existed in the 1980s seems to have been just shelved for a long period. Perhaps so, it'll come back. So you can't just feed in the entire text of the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language by Pullman Huddleston and let the uh, computer apply that knowledge. Yeah, heavens no, because the one thing <laughs> that you're going to need uh, in order to understand the Cambridge Grammar is a very good reading knowledge of standard English as it is. We're explaining the language in the language. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, it's the only thing we can do. It's not a, a mathematicized version of the grammar. It's just an informal walkthrough of what English is like explained in English with exemplification. So it will teach you a lot, but only if you can read the language already. Now, we've all heard a, a lot of scientists um, sort of rhapsodize about the beauties of the things they study. Uh, Carl Sagan talking about the vastness of the universe, or Charles Darwin saying there is grandeur in this view of life. I want to hear a linguist tell me what most thrills him, excites him, what he marvels at in our language. I think the greatest thing about being a linguist is that you're continuously surrounded by the object of study all the time. Astronomers must make a trip to the cold, windy mountaintop where the observatory is. Biologists have to go out into the field and chase lizards in jungles. 
But not so for linguists. They're just uh, having fun all the time. Well, Jeff Pollum, it's been fun talking to you today. And fun talking to you, Robert. Thanks.